0: I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast An Evening with Robert Webb from our 2018 programme. From Peep Show to Mitchell and Webb, Nevermind the Buzzcocks and Cold Feet, Robert Webb's screen achievements as a creator, writer and actor have seen him become one of the most recognisable and best loved faces in British comedy. How Not to Be a Boy is the actor and author's frank memoir, about a life shadowed by his tempestuous father and the early death of his mother. It's also a refreshing rumination on masculinity. In a wide-ranging conversation with Noel McCarthy, Webb talks about his life and work and the way in which concepts of family and fatherhood continue to evolve. This session was supported by our Platinum Bold patrons, Betsy and Michael Benjamin. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Good evening, everyone. I'm Noelle McCarthy. It's a pleasure to welcome all of you to our session tonight, an evening with Mr. Robert Webb. Huge thanks to our Platinum Bold patrons, Betsy and Michael Benjamin, for their support of Robert's appearances here in New Zealand. It's a 75-minute session, as you know. And how we'll do it is Robert and I will have a conversation. Robert's kindly agreed to do some readings. And we will leave some time for your questions at the end. So Robert Webb, not only an acclaimed writer, actor, and comedian, <laughs> he is also a committed and exceptionally limber physical performer, as anyone who has googled Robert Webb Flash Dance will attest. As well as a dancer, yeah, give it a clap. Just,
2: <laughs> just because you can't see it doesn't mean I'm not wearing it
1: as well as a dancer of note. You will know him as one of the stars of Peep Show, one of the most brilliant, audacious, sweaty palm-inducing British sitcoms of all time for awkward, agonizing brilliance. It sets a benchmark yet to be surpassed. If you haven't seen it, you're gonna go home tonight and Google it. Do not watch the dog episode first. Do not. Build up to it, take your time, I beg you. And then of course there are the sketch shows with his peep show co-star David Mitchell. More brilliance from existential Nazis, are we the baddies? To the differences between ads aimed at men versus ads aimed at women. Women, for God's sake, sort yourselves out. Men, (laughs) shave and get drunk, you're brilliant. Between them, Robert Webb and David Mitchell are responsible for some of the most beloved and quotable skits in television history. So not content with raising the bar of British comedy for an entire generation, Robert Webb has now written a best-selling book as well. It's just gone bestseller in paperback as well, I believe.
2: It's number four in Britain. Since you bring it up.
1: Hashtag humblebrag. Called Not To Be A Boy, How Not To Be A Boy. It's a thematic memoir about love and grief and violence and ambition, about childhood and Cambridge and Carrie Fisher. All the good things. Mostly, though, it's about boyhood and manhood, in particular and in general about masculinity, the expectations that surround it, the impossibility of attaining them, the mistakes, the pitfalls, the pain, and some of the great joys of manhood, including, as it happens, the joy of dancing live on stage in front of millions of people in a curly wig and a leotard. He's not dancing tonight, I don't think, but he's here to talk about his book and his life. What a pleasure to welcome Robert Webb.
2: Well, I've peaked. and
1: uh, (laughs) People probably always ask you this, but was there pressure to call it Men Are We the Baddies?
2: (laughs) No, nobody's ever thought of that. And um, (laughs) what a missed opportunity. Uh, No, there was no such pressure, not even from within my own brain, because I'd never thought of that.
1: (laughs) They say comedy is all about timing, and you, you nailed this you know this book came out last year just as me too was was really kicking off in earnest well harvey
2: weinstein works for me and <laughs> uh, <laughs> and i organized all of that so it took some it took a lot of admin um, but it i got it done yes sorry i interrupted yeah but uh,
1: add some contacts in the Mossad, i imagine but you know this is a book that that Chafes against those narrow definitions of masculinity at a time when there is this huge appetite, indeed, you know, a need for that. Are you just exceptionally good at anticipating the
0: zeitgeist? No, it didn't.
2: um, It's it's nowhere near as clever as that. It it didn't feel very zeitgeisty when I when I sort of pitched the idea. Uh, I mean, books take ages. It turns out, and so on and off. Uh, It it was two years in the making, really. Um, And at the time, I thought, you know, there was, well, what I mainly thought was when this book comes out, maybe it's going to be read by my friends, and I'll get four or five supportive emails, and then we'll never speak of it again. (laughs) That's That's what you mainly think when you're writing. But I thought if it did any, if it, if it reached any kind of audience at all, then I'd be, maybe I could start a conversation. By the time it came out, it felt like I was joining a conversation, Mm. um, because Grayson Perry had already done his thing, Matt Haig had talked about grief and depression, and and it sort of touches on some of the themes in the book. Um, Prince Harry and Prince William had, you know, said stuff about, you know, don't bottle it up, and uh, so so it it wasn't like, it was completely new territory, but and so and this is all good news. I wasn't, I, I wasn't bemused uh, that other people had um, started to say this uh, already. And of course, and there's nothing new. You know, Bell Hooks was saying this, you know, decades ago. But yeah. I, there's nothing new in it. But it, but I thought I was well placed to, to address that uh, these concerns. Mm.
1: And, and and certainly, you know, without even getting into the. The personal biographical stuff, and we will, but just in terms of your acting life, Mark and Jez from Peep Show, I, I think, is somebody from the Guardian. It would be describing them as the most relatably dysfunctional men in sitcom history. I, I know that Jeremy is not you, but reading the book gave me a lot of insight into how you were able to play him.
2: That's a very charming way of putting it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, what is it? I mean, Jeremy is uh, petulant and sarcastic and not very bright and a terrible liar and deeply selfish uh, and deluded and deeply untalented. Uh, So it was a real stretch. But, um, I mean, it's funny, because on paper, he's, he's, a, he's just a shit. Uh, he's just really not a nice guy at mm. all, so the challenge was always to, to make him watchable. I mean, he had that sort of puppyish enthusiasm, uh, so I tried to, you know, um, play that as often as possible, because most of the time he was just being horrible. <laughs>
1: but you did that, and, and reading the book, there's a moment from Peep Show that kept recurring in my memory, you know, when. He's told someone he's having a baby, and he's not. He's made it off. Oh, fuck. You know, man. lied completely. And he's being found out, as usual. Yeah. And, and he says, what does he say? He says, you know, I thought it would make me seem like a real person.
2: <laughs> being a father.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Yes. Well, it, do, it does make you feel like a real... Well, actually, no, that's a bit, that's a bit tough on the child three. Uh they are, <laughs> they are also real people. Um, <laughs> but when you... When you become a parent, you do, yes, you, you sort of have to, uh, it's a transformative thing, you, you do change. Mm. Uh, and I resented that before, you know, when, when Abby was pregnant with our, our first uh, daughter, people like my older brothers or friends, friends who'd already had children saying, uh, oh, you'll never be the same again, that will change. Well, really? Well, I don't, I don't really necessarily want to be a different person. I'm you know, I think I'm all right. I think you know I'm quite happy being as I am. But it, but it's true. It does, it's a, it's a big yeah. deal. And and your
1: book is so honest about how messy it gets when the rubber meets the road in that way. You know when, because you you say you know you were a feminist. You were a feminist yeah. before you had kids. You were you were gonna split everything fifty-fifty. Yeah. It was all gonna be fine. Could completely understand. You know the theoretical equality of women, and then you got married, and um, you, had a, you and your wife had a baby, and what happened?
2: Well, the, all of the, I mean, it's difficult to do this without starting at the beginning, but just briefly, um, the family that I came from was, was a, a traditionally gendered household, and mum did all of the house stuff, and dad did all of the working outside the house. Um, and he came home, he worked hard, and he had a, uh, you would call him a functional alcoholic these days, but he was only doing what everybody else was doing, which was going to work, having a few pints, coming home in a bad mood. Uh, Mm. And um, so, and she divorced him when I was five. And then when I got married, You know, as you say, I thought, well, I can't possibly be uh, sexist because I vote labor and I write anti-sexist comedy sketches and I've read man-made language by Dale Spender. So (laughs) um, uh, that's not going to happen to me. And then actually, when I became a father, that original model um, reasserted itself. Not that I was, you know, uh, I would punish the children physically as my father did. I'd rather chew my own arms off. But some of the other stuff, I started drinking a bit more. And also that sort of bread-winning panic. Uh, I must go out and do some really terrible television in order to uh, bring in. You may have been spared great movie mistakes over here. Um, don't worry. You, you really didn't miss anything. Um, or so the
1: internet one.
2: The internet. Oh, yes. And then my own show, Robert's Web. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the TV show about the internet, which it's ahead of its time. Uh, it would have been a bad idea, even if I got my way and called it Worldwide Robert. Um, but some some producers have no sense of adventure. Um, but it was a, a really Really terrible show, uh, but it's, I, I was just I was just doing anything, and we were you know peep show was still going, the sketch show was still going. It's, it wasn't like we were about to starve, mm. um, but I went, I had to get out, of <laughs> get out of that house, and actually you know it turns out it's you know some of this stuff is, is you know you notice that society is sort of set up for what men think is good for them or mm. for the convenience of men, when actually uh, it didn't do me good at all. I should have been home more Mm. and particularly because I had the you know I I could afford to be.
1: And that realization you know of, of your own shortcomings and the ways in which they echo a previous generation that's part of what makes this such an affecting book you know because as we have been saying it's a book that engages with what's happening right now in our culture and in our time but it's not some sort of Think piece, really, this is your life, this is... Yeah,
2: no, it's not a sort of, it, I, I, it's funny because when we talk about the book quite often we end up talking about the sort of political element of it and it's a story and it's also got this preoccupation with gender and masculinity and the, the challenge was to put those two elements at the service of each other, um, but it's, no, it's not a social science book with 30 pages of notes in the back, um, in fact, I, I think I use the word patriarchy like once, because because I want people to read it, um, <laughs> so, so it's not like that. But on the other hand, it's not a sort of bog-standard celeb um, memoir because I, I, I'm not famous enough to write a book that dull. So <laughs> the, the sort of quality control took care of itself, really. It had to be good, and it had to be about something.
1: Yeah. Philip Roth apparently said, write like your parents are dead, and in fairness, you probably wouldn't have wanted <laughs> right. to be his mother, you know, reading a nah. lot of his stuff, but did it make it easier that your parents had passed away?
2: Yeah, well, my mother died, died when I was uh, 17, uh, and that's sort of, uh, that's, <laughs> and that's in the book. Um, it's sort of in the, in the middle, really, that's the sort of central... Moment. Uh, My dad died in 2013, and the honest answer is, I certainly could not have written Mm. this book if he was still around. It would just be mean. It's not. It's not just cowardice, or it's partly cowardice on my part. But um, Mm. it. uh, But you know, and towards the end of the book, and I hope that I, you know, I give a a generous and good and fair account of him, um, because there was lots to admire about uh, Mm. Paul. And he was, you know, he was very uh, charming and, uh, and great company. And uh, I say in the book you know, that he didn't so much live in that village as host it. And that, you know, he would walk into a pub and you would just see the whole room just subtly adjust itself in his direction and settle itself in for a treat. And he was also what you want from a dad, which is he, you were left in no doubt that if you were in this bear pit, he would jump down in the bear pit with you. And uh, you know, in his prime, I, I pity the bear. Um, but, uh, but when he was in the sort of 70s, where, where we start our story, we, we meet him not at his best. He just didn't really know what to do mm. with, a, with a very young family. Uh, and I couldn't tell the story without, without having that there, mm. um, because it's important for what I was like later. So, um, so I, but I couldn't, I wouldn't have wanted him to have read that.
1: Mm. I, I never met him and i 'm sorry i haven 't now that i 've read the book, but um, I get the sense you were trying to be fair, and that wasn 't necessarily easy because he is this very complicated, contradictory character, this man yeah. with his great heart, but you know he 's terrifying as well this woodsman yeah. you know he 's almost like a figure from a fairy tale he 's <laughs> a woodsman and he 's got a reattached thumb and he yeah. cooks these magnificent meals he sort of conjures them up from the kitchen and and that wonderful moment where you get into Cambridge and he's whooping and laughing yeah, yeah. in the bedroom next
2: door. Oh, he was delighted, yeah. I mean, yeah, so he had, um, so my, my daddy was a woodcutter. Um, and he, uh, so chainsaws were always leaning up against various <laughs> doors. Uh, and uh, yes, the, the, this section of his thumb was stuck onto his hand because the mid part, uh, I think it was a, uh, an experiment with um, an afternoon session in the pub, followed by doing his job with his chainsaw. Um, I think it was both thumbs, no, I think it was only one um, yeah, and he was and he was a and he was a terrific cook and Where did we get to? oh yeah, and um but yes, he was absolutely on my side, and when my mum died, I went to uh, live with him again and uh, and we didn 't really see eye to eye, and it was a tricky period, but he knew what I was. You know, I was there to, I went back to school for most of the year and sat in the classes of the year below, uh, and then eventually got the grades I needed. And yeah, then we had this uh, massive pub crawl, of course, mm. uh, which is how you celebrate. What was it? Six
1: pubs? Seven? It was,
2: yeah, it was six. Yeah.
1: All of the pubs. In well,
2: the you'd pubs. start at the uh, at the perimeter of the village and then driving uh, <laughs> work work your way to the middle. <laughs> And then, you know, he would like, he would like go, it's okay, I'll, I'll go down the back roads. And The back roads, the police were just always there on the <laughs> back roads. They knew when, what date he was going to get his license back. There they were, waiting for him.
1: <laughs> but anger, it, one gets the sense reading the book that anger was, was almost the only emotion available to him, socially sanctioned.
2: Y- For him. Well, yeah, I mean, no, yeah, I mean, he wa- yes, he, he was angry <laughs> quite often, but, um, but he was also good fun, you know. Um, but I sort of say in the book, the stuff about about masculinity in childhood, um, about, you know, boys being told uh, to man up and don't cry, and mm. boys don't cry, and shrug it off. And, you know, what you're supposed to do with negative emotions is to, basically pretend they're not happening. Um, And this stuff has to come out somewhere, and quite often it comes out as anger. I mean, I speak for myself, but I'm hoping to ring some bells here. I still get angry when what I'm actually feeling is grief, or angry when I'm actually uh, ashamed, or angry because I'm frightened. Um, And, you know, if that's just me, then we're fine, because I don't live in the White House. Mm. Uh, I don't work in the Kremlin uh, or the Vatican and I'm not <laughs> in charge of a major investment bank, um, so, but if it's not just me and I make occasionally poor decisions because I can't process my emotions properly, um, then we've got an issue here.
0: Mm.
1: Was that a revelation for you, that anger was on the surface of other emotions as you, as you experienced it in your own life? I mean, you talk a little bit about, about therapy when yeah. you were at university. Was that like a slow dawning for you?
2: I wasn't really aware of the, the, the specific thing about, uh, you know, not being your own emotional detective and not mm-hmm. really working out what you're feeling. Um, that was much later. I think, I, think, uh, I think Abby, my wife, was a big influence there. Um, the the counselling that I had at, uh, at university was really, really important in terms of getting over the uh, death of my mum. I mean, you, I say mm. in the book you never really get over something like that, but you learn to coexist with it. and You sort of make peace with it, uh, and it's 28 years ago now. I mean, I, you know, this is where quite, quite rightly and properly the jokes kind of dry up a little mm. bit in the book because there's a certain decorum. I've had 28 years to get used to the idea, but I I can't drop these bombshells on the reader. I I feel a sort of Mm. uh, a duty of care there. Um, But uh, but yeah, I was very properly properly depressed. I think uh, about two years later, by by the time I was at university, and not really, there just came this uh, fortnight where I wasn't really eating. I didn't really want to get out of bed. I was having suicidal thoughts and luckily the uh, university had this free counselling service. There was a bit of a, uh, a waiting list, but, um, but I, I went there, and, um, and they do this initial assessment of sort of, how mad are you, that these are not the preferred terms, um, <laughs> thing, and it was a very nice man, and he got me to talk about what was going on, and, uh, and I didn't mention uh, the suicidal thoughts. I thought that would be a bit much. Um, <laughs> I mean, come on. I've only just met the man, this is England. Um, <laughs> and uh, he doesn't want me going on about that. Um, but he says at the end of the uh, the end of the hour, you know, it um, uh, seems to me you've had a lot of separation in your life and you're using it as a model uh, f- through which you view uh, current adversities and it makes things seem worse than they really are and you have a problem and I think we can help. And to hear a proper professional grown-up uh, say that made a lot of difference and then you know, I started going for an hour a week, and it just made, um, made life easier in that, you know, okay, this is a horrible experience I'm ha- having in my head, but at least I can talk to Michael about it uh, on Thursday.
1: Mm. The funny bits are very funny and, you know, as you've alluded to, the sad bits are very sad. Mm. You know, there's an emotional honesty in your writing and, and I know by the time you started this you were already an acclaimed writer for television, a comedy writer, but this sort of writing is very different, isn't
2: it? I'm yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been a, a, a professional writer for 20 years but, but that's it's almost all been comedy sketches and uh, pilot sitcoms that didn't get made. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, I, but fairly recently, sort of in 2010, I, I had a column in the Daily Telegraph for a year, and then I started writing columns every now and again for the New Statesman magazine. And I wrote a sort of uh, a longish 1800-word uh, thing, which was called How Not to Be a Boy, which was, is sort of this book in nucleus, really. Uh, and I thought uh, that was one of the sort of geneses, what a Pretentious dick. One, one of the sort of starting points. Beginnings. Beginnings, thanks. Starts of. of uh, come on, it's a writer's festival. Um, I personally think that Ben Ockree should return to his short stories in order to refresh his style. Um, it's something I went around saying in 1992. I don't think it's true anymore. Um, anyway. Uh, uh, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, that was in, so ben that article was one of the, I thought, mm. yeah, because I was preoccupied uh, with gender and masculinity and I thought a memoir would be a good way to approach it because mm. that's where it starts. It starts in childhood.
1: Mm. And of course now, as we started off by saying, it's pushing right up against our time. It's pushing right up against the zeitgeist because it seems that what this current movements, Me Too, Time's Up, what they are triggering, or perhaps uncovering, is a crisis, you know? is I, I don't know, is that overstating it in masculinity?
2: Well, I say, you know, in the book, you know, um, that every now and again on a news programme, you'll, you'll have this debate, is masculinity in crisis? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm tempted to say it is a crisis. It's something that mm-hmm. you recover from, mm-hmm. uh, and some men do, uh, ba- basically when they get to about my age or older, and some men just don't, and I, you know, Put it this way, uh, when my, my, fi- my last grandparent, John, uh, who's 92, the last thing uh, he said to me, I was in the care home and I was saying cheerio, and, and uh, as I got to the, I didn't know that was gonna be the last time I saw him, but as I got to the door, he said, at least we had some good holidays, mate. <laughs> and just, what, what, and I said, yeah, yes we did, uh, but at least? And I, and I think he just felt this mm. deficit and, uh, and I saw it three times over with him and uh, Dad and my stepdad Derek. That, that you know, men don't get to the end of their lives and start saying, "I wish I'd spent less time with my children. I wish I'd spent more time at work. I wish I'd shrugged and walked away more often when I upset the women I loved. I wish I'd mocked more other men for being snowflakes. I wish I'd started more fights." Mm. It's always, you know, that, uh, a sense of regret that they missed out on too much of the. Good stuff fun and friendship and love and understanding mm. and compassion, um, and I think the rules of masculinity get in the way of all of that, and they mm. come in between men and women but also come in between mothers and daughters and fathers and sons
1: mm. and, and you know the theme of, of male anger, which goes through the book as well, your own anger you know the, that of previous generations, it made me think of that Margaret Atwood line that everyone seems to be quoting a lot lately, you know, that um, men are afraid women will laugh at them, women are afraid that men will kill them. Mm. You know, this sort of brutality of that. And your book does set up sort of the first part of that. You know, right at the beginning, you're practicing Rick Astley dance Mm. so you can get off with Tess Rampling.
2: That's right, yes. You
1: know, so that drive to impress. comes from a place of wanting to impress women.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: (laughs) And the stakes are very high.
2: Well, the stakes were very high, yes. uh, Because, yeah, I was 15 and hopelessly and madly in love with or had a crush on. Um, A sixth-former called uh, Tess Rampling, who was this, you know, she was two years above me and therefore a figure of demoralising maturity. And she would go around having interesting-looking, intellectual-sounding conversations with teachers who looked pretty happy to help. (laughs) For <laughs> uh, the, the male teachers, and I wanted to help her too. I I wanted to help her like we just invented helping, um, and uh, and one of the ways I thought I was going to impress her was was doing this. You know, because I'd always been, what saved me from being bullied, because I was very, very quiet and very shy and very skinny and I couldn't do football or running or jumping or climbing trees and I was scared of wasps and nettles and I was a coward and a a wimp. Um, But I never got bullied because I would always latch on to the biggest lad who was not himself a bully and he would be my sort of patron. Uh, And uh, and I'd make him laugh, and I'd do impressions of teachers, and I'd rewrite the lyrics to pop songs and make up, you know. And so I I always had that from from quite early, six or seven. Um, But by the time I was 13, I worked out that I could do a version of that, not just with my friends, but on a stage. Um, And I started doing, putting on these sort of of end-of-term reviews, sketch shows, basically, that you do in the school hall, and you charge everyone 10p and nominally it was for charity and to encourage team building, uh, but mainly it was so that I could have sex with Tess Rampling. Um, <laughs> which, needless to say, never happened. Um, but you know, we would do, you know, it was all TV parody, you know, a coruscating parody of Blue Peter called Glue Peter, uh, where <laughs> the presenters are all stoned. Um, I didn't know what stoned people looked like, but I imagined it was a bit like drunk people. I don't know. It was, it wasn't my best work, <laughs> but it was a start.
1: Exactly, and and you've gone on to do all sorts of great things from from those beginnings. Mm. And you have form with a certain type of male character. I mean, I talked about Jez, but there's also Bertie Wooster, of course. Oh, you know, and we love Bertie, but Bertie has the horror of getting married, of the fish slice, doesn't he?
2: Yes, I never thought of that. Yes, I suppose he's another man boy, but. Oh. Um, but but rather more, yes.
1: That's the worst thing that could happen to him. a little
2: bit potty, yes, (laughs) absolutely. Now I played Bertie for, um, oh, well, it was um, three months in uh, the Duke of York's theater and then we went on tour around the provinces. (laughs) And uh, and, yeah, and that was brilliant fun. Um, But yeah, no, I I hadn't made that connection. Yes, of Mm. course. uh, And
1: it's a trope. It's a trope in our society, isn't it? This sort of, you know, Peter Pan is a generous way. (laughs) <laughs> referring to it, but you can also just say, you know, man-child or, or man-boy. Or
2: men going into their cave, as in men are from Mars, women are from yes. Venus. Yes,
1: you've given that some thought, haven't you? Yes. Do you want to... Um, Shall I? Do...
2: <laughs> See, I'm, I'm doing my own segues.
1: <laughs> I don't even need to be here.
0: <laughs> just listen. <coughs>
2: Um, Sorry, excuse me. Uh, So I'll do a little reading, um, which is uh, oddly from quite close to the end of the book. Um, So it's uh, 2000. Sorry, Okay, mate. Uh, It's 2000, and she's kicking off. Uh, It's 2002, and all you really need to know, and I've just started to, things are just starting to happen for me and David Mitchell, and uh, I don't know it, but I'm just at the end, I'm coming to the end of an eight year relationship with a very nice person called Jenna. So, the plan that I wrote in the diary on my 18th birthday is starting to fulfill some of its freakish ambitions. Cambridge, yes. Find someone funny to work with, yes. Edinburgh Fringe, yes. The job is looking up. The life, though, I'm not really thinking about the life. The life is surely fine until somebody tells me it's not fine. That's life, isn't it? I buy a copy of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, feeling immediately very pleased with myself that I'm man enough to read a popular book about relationships. The slight downside with popular books about relationships is that all of them are wrong. (laughs) Wrong because they all start from the premise of difference, that men and women are so fundamentally, innately, mentally and culturally different that they might as well be considered as two different species from two different planets. If you start there, you give yourself permission to accept every stereotype you've ever heard about men and women. So books like the one mentioned, as well as its imitations with titles like why men don't listen and women can't read maps, Orion 2001, and why women talk and men walk, how to improve your relationship without discussing it.
1: <laughs> That's the trick,
2: The Million 2007. These are real books are there not to question the different expectations placed on men and women, they're there to excuse and reinforce them, usually with a truckload of hokey metaphors and dodgy looking science. For example, in Men Are From Mars, John Gray suggests that men and women react in different ways to stress. Women want to talk about it with their close friends, while men want to go into their cave i.e. retreat to the shed or games console. It rings a bell, surely, and if sales of the book are anything to go by, Gray has indeed rung more than 50 million bells. That's how you make some serious cash at this gender lark, make a generalization, and then explain it with a horseshit theory that lets everyone off the hook. (laughs) If Gray had a couple more jokes, he could be on live at the Apollo. Men and women, eh, eh, they're different, aren't they? Hey? Eh? why can't men wrap presents? Come on, fellas, you know it's true. There you are, sellotaping your fingers together. Why can't we wrap presents, Hey, eh? Ladies, you have to come and do the wrapping for us, don't you, Hey? Eh? Ladies, you have to do the wrapping. Sometimes we've got you a present and you have to wrap it. I'm saying you have to wrap your own presents, exactly. <laughs> Footnote, men really do seem to be worse at wrapping presents, <laughs> <laughs> and I suggest that's because we've had less practice. As to why that might be, John Gray is about as interested as John Bishop. And it seems to Jenna and me as once again she goes glumly to bed and I stay up with a bottle of wine to play Civilization 2 for another three hours. That. Mm. Yes, Mr. Grey has definitely is definitely onto something. I'm not rejecting Jenna, I'm just in my cave. And when Jenna wants to talk about how our relationship doesn't seem to be much fun anymore, that's just because she's from Venus. <laughs> Luckily, Venusians only want to be listened to there's nothing a Martian can actually do to help. In fact, if a Martian tries to solve the problem, then he's just showing that he doesn't get that she's from another planet. So I make a big show of listening, because conveniently, that is now the maximum requirement. (laughs) It doesn't occur to me that the reason why Jenna wants to talk about our relationship is that it really is looking quite peaky. Neither do I consider that as a girl and then a woman, she has been told about five times an hour that care of personal relationships, wrapping presents among other things, is her job. I, on the other hand, am quite certain that care of personal relationships is basically none none of my business. I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, I'll read this stupid book and everything, but this stupid book just gave me a massive pass. So if you don't mind, I'll just, do, I'll just do my listening and then play Civilization II because that's precisely what I feel like doing with my time. Men don't have me time, you understand. They just have time. And now, rather marvelously, spending large portions of it alone doing something enjoyable isn't being selfish, it's fulfilling the basic psychological needs of my people the Martians.
1: <laughs> Thank you for that uh, dispatch from the planet Mars. The great thing about comedy is that it lets you illuminate ridiculousness, doesn't it? I mean, you're reading that, and I was thinking about that Mitchell and Webb sketch of the, you know, women, sort yourself out. Yes. It just skewers gender stereotyping so deftly and, and...
2: Well, I've always believed that you can say serious things with jokes. I mean, you can say silly things with jokes as well, but, mm. you can, but, it, but sometimes humor, comedy, you can reach places uh, where solemnity sometimes can't. Mm. I mean, you have to be careful. I mean, if you're getting into areas that, uh, that trigger people and are contentious, um, then you have to make sure that joke is roughly on the side of the angels. That you, you can ask yourself, who are we laughing at? What are we laughing at? Uh, and what is this joke doing? I've I've heard a, a comedian, it's Jimmy Carr, why be coy? I heard Jimmy Carr uh, <laughs> say that he thought that that comedy is a uh, is a holiday for the conscience, and I sort mm. of so I see what he means, but I think that dodges the emotional impact of what jokes do to people. Um, so I I can't quite go along with that. But yes, in the I think you know. Humour is, is one of the ace cards of the, of mm. the book, really, because you can, um, you can sort of slip things under the, under the radar. And also, because I'm, because I'm addressing men in a way, I mean, I, the book is for everyone, but I'm, but I'm talking about myself and how masculinity affected what the choices that other people made that affected me and the choices that I've made. Um, so when I'm talking to men, I'm just very conscious that I don't want this stuff to bounce off their pride, because I know what we're like, because I am one, Um, and Mm. so humour is one of those ways to sort of, to get through there. I don't want it to to feel like I'm giving anyone a bollocking. I don't tell anyone what to do. Mm. The the governing tone of the book is self-mockery, really, Um, but I'm out to ring some bells.
1: You make me wish, just incidentally, that we had more comedians who made more jokes about or wrote more books about climate change, for example, because I always feel like I'm getting a bollocking about that. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, I feel bollocked about climate change. Yeah. It's
1: almost (laughs) as though some subjects are so serious that you need to approach them. The end of the earth. (laughs) In a funny way. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, I thought about Caitlin Moran reading this. I thought about um, how to be a woman and that same joyfulness of tone because there is an absence of, this is a heavy conversation that we're participating in, talking about, especially right now, you know, especially given the, the anger, there's anger swirling around on both sides, you know, on the one hand you're looking at toxic male anger and on the other hand you're looking at, you know, what feels like a justifiable reckoning on the other side and and Society has a different sort of problem with female anger, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, when the, I mean, these, uh, it was such a relief when the book actually came out and I started to hear from readers. Uh, that was just so brilliant. Uh, and every day now I hear from the happy readers of how not to be a boy and it's, uh, and it's a very privileged and lovely position to be in. What um, do they say to you? Oh, they, they what lots of compliments, which I'm far too modest to repeat, of course. <laughs> um, but, they, uh, but before it came out, people were judging the book on, uh, quite reasonably, on what I was saying about it. Th- things like this, and, and interviews that I was lucky enough to do on, on the news and, and, uh, and on uh, arts programs and in newspapers and whatnot. And the reaction I got from most people was oh, this, uh, this looks interesting. Of course, there, there is always going to be a section of extremely angry men who I succeeded in making even angrier uh, for a while, and now <laughs> they've just settled back down to sort of their default livid. Um, <laughs> but the sort of, you, you're kind of men's rights activists and, uh, and people who think that, you know, we've got f- 32% of the House of Commons is female now, it's PC gone mad, and, you know, that, you know, the old-fashioned reactionaries and the slightly more energetic Nazis. Um, <laughs> the uh, they, they were, they're very cross with me. Um, so, you know, Why would tough. it
1: cross, in particular?
2: Oh, because I'm a, I'm a cuckold, libtard, self-loathing, uh, mm. male feminist um, mm. mangina. Um, <laughs> I mean, they put a lot of work into this stuff. Right? Mm. Uh, who is trying to pursue, I mean, th- what, what they, th- the slight mistake they're making is, uh, they recognize this unbelievably slow glacial uh, withdrawal, of, withdrawal of privilege, and they're confusing that with a sense of persecution, and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, so there's a female Doctor Who, well, you, now you've destroyed my childhood again, <laughs> and, and, you know, because it's, she, it's, it's a fucking time lord, he's got two <laughs> hearts, they invented the whole regeneration thing because the actor couldn't remember his lines anymore, because William because William Hartnell was being such a pain in the arse and he had to go, but they didn't want to cancel the show. So they got Patrick Troughton's, so they invented Regenerate. What are you talking about? Of course he gets to be a woman.
1: that begs itself when you think about gender gender roles and stereotypes is who's it good for? Who does it serve?
2: You oh, know, right.
1: the, the narrowness, the, the damage that it causes, the trauma. I mean, you, you've talked about masculinity as a crisis. On the other hand, you get women who are either written off as Haridians or you know, shrews for being too angry, or if we do express a bit more on the emotional spectrum, we're too emotional. Yeah. And that's a stereotype that's been used to justify all sorts of sexist views and treatments. So we're getting it on both sides.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of get into that when I talk about, uh, I, I use the phrase toxic masculinity exactly once, which is when I explain why I avoid it. And I, uh, I avoid it uh, not just because, uh, as I was saying earlier, I, uh, that, it, that it, it sounds to uh, uh, the male ear. <laughs> it sounds to men sometimes like it's an attack on their character, which it absolutely isn't. I mean, there are men who, who will take an attack on sexism personally, and you have to watch out for those guys. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, the, but I don't say toxic masculinity because... it. it bear with me when I say this, it implies there's a good kind of masculinity, and I'm not saying that, 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 that that's a problem with men. I think men are terrific. Men can be magnificent and also behave disgracefully, just like women. I think we're all just farty humans who are mm-hmm. most of us just trying to do our best but uh, and have a good time and not cause too much harm, and that's fine. Um, you know, I, haven't, I, I don't think being... a I don't think, thank yay you, for party. yay for centrist dab, just generally, let's all be nice, um, <laughs> let's all just be nice. But, uh, but I don't think, uh, I really completely lost my thread there. Uh,
1: men and, oh, you don't talk about toxic masculinity. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's right. I don't think that, 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 that being male is some innately fallen state. I think, you know, I'm just saying, mm. you know, men, are, men can be lovely, but the but the masculinity stuff. I don't know. I don't know what. I don't know what that word's doing. I don't know what, why. Why we need it. So if you say someone's proud of his masculinity, what? So we're talking about stoicism or grace under pressure or physical courage. I mean that's great. But I've seen women give birth, and well, I've seen one woman give birth. <laughs> um, <laughs> in real life. Um, I've probably seen women give birth, pretend to give birth you know, on television. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and you know, grace under pressure and, and physical courage. Don't tell me that these are exclusively male traits. Just like um,
1: gentleness and compassion aren't exclusively female. Absolutely,
2: traits. yeah. But um, but again, you know, it, go, it goes back to childhood and, mm. and the, the stuff that is encouraged or um, with tiny cues. I mean, this doesn't. I'm not. I'm not saying that. You know, you've, you've got people banning uh, boys from wearing the color pink or whatever, but, it, but, but very subtle things. You know, I know that our two girls, uh, when their grandmother turns up, she is going to make 16 ape- you know, comments about their appearance. Uh, she's going to talk about the clothes that they're wearing and their hair and their body shape. Uh, and with the, their male cousins, this is just me slagging off my mother-in-law now, I I've come, <laughs> I'm far enough around the world to get away with it. If hopefully. you can,
1: come to New Zealand and talk about exactly, it away, can you do it? Exactly,
2: um, And with their male cousins, she will immediately ask them what they've been doing. And this kind of, you know, I've heard uh, gender-neutral parenting being described as gardening in a gale. Mm. Um, you know, there's only so much you can do because it's, it's everywhere. It's, you know, let's cross the road, we'll wait for the green man let's make a snow person, let's, I mean, it, the language and the culture, it, it's just, uh, and don't get me started on In the Night Garden, have you ever, what, you, do you get In the Night Garden? Mm. You know, okay, I don't think enough people, I'm not going to do my devastating critique of In the Night Garden, but, um, <laughs> but it's, uh, but anyway, it's, it's everywhere, just this, this general thing that, um, it's with
1: napping. I noticed in the supermarket recently up until a certain age you can both have the same nappy yeah. and then at a Oh certain yeah and then there's pink point, and blue
2: nappies yes of course there are pink
1: and blue nappies
2: absolutely yeah let's just segregate them as often mm. as possible
1: mm. but one of the things that the exposure of you know the rottenness in the culture around these apex predator men like Harvey Weinstein for example I- is exposing is that you know, however h- horrific these patriarchal structures are for women, they're not serving men, either.
2: No, well, they're, they're serving men in, in terms of uh, access to the professions. Of course they are. Mm. But, um, but I know what you mean. In, in, in terms of their, their emotional health, mm. uh, no, I, th- I'm, I suppose I'm trying to say that uh, this stuff is set up for the convenience of men, but it, but it en- ends up hurting men as well. But, in, you know, in terms of uh, you know the professions, uh, including my own in my day job as in t v comedy I mean in Britain we've had um, seventy six prime ministers since Sir Robert Walpole, and seventy four of them were men mm. and you know why why was that then I mean uh, y- even the most massive dinosaur these days would not say well, it's because women are stupider and lazier than men although if if you believe that, you should say so um, <laughs> but uh but, I, but, but still, you know, why did that happen? Well, wha- how do you explain that number? Well, it's because there has been this positive discrimination scheme for men in politics, as well as in comedy, and medicine, and law, and finance, and all the rest of it. And it has a name, and that name is the patriarchy. Mm. Uh, and again, I, you know, I don't, I don't say patriarchy very often. Uh, and well, people, you call it something people, else
1: in the book, don't you?
2: Well, yeah, I do. I do actually, yes. I tell that little story? Um, (laughs) Yes, my daughter Esme uh, was five and she had a non-uniform day coming up at school uh, and she asked Abby, her mother, um, if I go as Spider-Man and not as a princess do you think people will laugh at me? And Abby said, they might laugh and what will you say if they do? And And Esi said, Shall I tell them they're laughing because of the trick that makes men sad and women get rubbish jobs?
1: <laughs> Sums it up.
2: <laughs> and Abby said, yes, I think that's a very good answer, yes. And the, the trick came out of, I think they were, they were looking at pictures of handbags or something, and Abby had met, said something about the, the patriarchy, it's that kind of family. Uh, and... Um, <laughs> And this came back as the patriarchy, and it turned into the trick. And so the trick now is the code word, is the family code word basically for all of the stuff that Ezzie and Dory and all of their female and male friends at school, in their tiny primary school, are gonna spend their lives wading through this stuff about this is what you, how you perform being a girl, this is how you perform being a boy. Uh, and they should be, It's. I think it's important that they can name it when they see it. I don't think that's not, that's not meddling with biology. That is a straightforward duty of care.
1: Mm. I was going to ask you how you feel about someone like the um, Canadian academic Jordan Peterson, you know, saying this.
2: Jordan <laughs> oh. He just makes me laugh. I just, yeah. I, I, just I don't
1: think he's intending to. Though, no, no,
2: no, no, no. Uh, no, I just keep thinking of his students who, who don't see, who don't seem to like him any more than I do, uh, when he starts talking about mm. thought being archetypically male, and things like that.
1: Uh, it's complicated though by, well, it's complicated by his popularity for one thing at the moment. You know, there's obviously an appetite for these sorts of conversations, as we can see from the success of your book. But he's having a moment as well. He's having cut through. There is obviously a constituency out there who he's speaking to.
2: Yeah. Well, disaffected uh, young Mm. men. But, I mean, we all get disaffected every now and again. I, I think he's... I mean, I don't know. S- I haven't read his book. Uh, I've seen him being interviewed, and he just struck me as this kind of typically sort of slippery academic who, you mm. know, you could say, Jordan Peterson, you've got two arms and two legs, and he start asking you to define your terms, mm. and I, you know, I, uh, yeah. There's I mean, a
1: disingenuousness there. Yeah,
2: I, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> can't, I can't really go much further because I haven't read his book, so mm. I, I can't really get stuck into yeah. it.
1: But m- b- Me either, I haven't read 12 Rules for Life, but I would pretty much guarantee yours is funnier. A- oh, and, yeah. and that's important, though, in this conversation, isn't it? I mean, you, you mentioned that. That need to to take people along with you.
2: Well, the, the other way... The, I mean, you know, I'm making it sound like I, I planned this. It's just I wrote it the way it, it needed to get written. Um, you know, that's, that's mm. how, it, how writing works, really. But, it, but the other way that that I sort of try to approach it is, is by making it so personal. It's a very intimate book in many ways, and so it's almost like I'm daring the reader to point and laugh as I'm, beca- I'm the first to pull my trousers down, and I'm sort of saying, look, we're, we're, we're all naked underneath, and we've all got wonky boobs or asymmetrical testicles or a, or a charming birthmark in the shape of Guernsey, uh, so... <laughs> You know, and and I I think it's, you know, if you you make yourself vulnerable and sort of lower your antlers, Mm. um, you will take the reader with you. So that's Mm. one of the other ways that I'm uh, emotionally manipulating people.
1: Well, I'm glad whoever it was, I don't know, was it your agent or someone involved who kept saying to you, make it 15% funnier?
2: Yeah, no, I, because <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I, before I got a book deal, I, I wrote the first two chapters uh, and, and a long sort of document, a pack of lies about what was going to happen in the rest of the book um, to send to publishers. And, and I sent, gave it to my agent first, and Ivan Mulcahy, and he, uh, uh, and he wrote back saying, it's great, um, make it 15% funnier. And uh, that was good advice, actually, because it, you know I'd sort of one can neglect. I'm, I'm never going to get bored with trying to entertain people, trying to make mm. people laugh. I seem to have given myself a, a night off tonight, though. Um, <laughs> but, um, oh,
1: too out.
2: But uh, but I, I think I think when I was in that early that, those early drafts, I'd sort of let let that go a bit too a bit too much, and actually to bring some more of the of the funny back was um, was a a joy.
1: It certainly was. I'm still laughing at you sitting in front of that disciplinary panel at Cambridge University. Yes. <laughs> you have to read the book in order to. Um, <laughs> to
2: Go to buy <laughs> to the share
1: book. It. What was it like going back over? Did you diary extensively? You know, your teenage years, you seem to have had so much access. I
2: I kept a diary between when I was sort of 16 and 24, when I basically cheered up. Um, (laughs) The diary was really just this vessel full of moaning. Um, I mean, the selection of material before then was was easier in a way, because um, there are only so many things you remember about being seven and mm-hmm. so they're, they're gonna be the important things. Um, and then as, you, as we, you know, suddenly I hit 16 and there's this vast amount of source material, uh, which, I mean, I really only skimmed through it because it's also boring. It's <laughs> just, okay, so-and-so won't get off with me, and now so-and-so might get off with me, uh, but no, no, it all goes wrong again, and why? <laughs> You know, what's wrong with my white, thin leather tie that I wear to parties? And <laughs> what's wrong with my red and grey ski jacket and my lemon V-neck jumper? And it's almost as if I should have a bath more than once a week. I mean, what do you have to do for these girls? Um, so it was just a you know a complaint vessel about the, the, the ticking clock of my virginity, which just got louder and louder <laughs> in my ear until I was 17, and, it, and then it... Thank God, uh, somebody (laughs) took pity. Um, But it, but it just it it felt it was such a big deal. Uh, And uh, these days, I think 17 is actually quite young to have sex. Mm. I I think sex is such a powerful and glorious, but complicated and difficult and ridiculous, but just this massive thing. I don't think anyone should do it till they're twenty, <laughs> but but I'm but I, I, I yeah I I will vainly suggest that to my daughters. But, <laughs> you know I wouldn't listen to me saying that. So.
1: It does seem to have been very useful, you know, going back to Tess Rampling, long may she reign. Um, it was very useful. She works for an
2: NGO now. She does. She helps the third world. She's great. <laughs> she's she's constantly building dams and you know. <laughs> ugh.
1: Of course she is. But it was a very useful driver for your ambition, wasn't it? I mean, not just taste, but there were women who came out
2: Impressing after. women.
1: Impressing women.
2: Yeah, well, I, I, see, I seem not to have grown out of it. Um, <laughs> no, it, uh, yeah, no, the, the, What the sex urge was a... <laughs> as Lawrence would call it.
1: Well, it'd be interesting, or maybe Jordan Peterson, it'd be interesting to know, you know, is that how when you and, and David are sitting around sort of writing sketches?
2: <laughs> D- is, it, is it sexual frustration that drives <laughs> us? But <laughs> we know we can, we can make love with anyone except each other. <laughs> that that's the rule that we can't break. <laughs> Who came up with this wretched rule? <laughs> Put aside these crazy inhibitions. <laughs> um, no, the way the way uh, David and I would write sketches was we would, uh, we'd we go to the pub um, and uh, we'd get a couple of notebooks out and um, and start talking. And quite often uh, we would talk, the, the, the low hanging fruit, the easiest sketches would usually be things that had annoyed us lately. Uh, so we would, we'd get a couple of ideas from that, but we'd just start talking and then Sometimes, you know, an idea, a funny idea for a sketch would sort of come in from the edges of sight and you don't grab it too quickly, you let it get a bit closer. You, uh, and we would get four or five ideas out of a you know, three hours in the pub and then not try to write them whilst having had f- however many pints <laughs> three or four hours is, um, but write them up uh, the following afternoon. And mm. uh, we never really walked in. The, we're not morning people. Uh, I heard Matt Lucas saying and David Walliams that they would turn up at an office at nine and work from nine till six. I mean, how can you? That's just monstrous.
1: I thought the whole point of being a performer is that you don't have to do that.
2: Exactly. Yeah, yeah it sickened me.
1: But, but <laughs> Yes, there's, a, there's an air of mystery or perhaps coyness around you writing about writing, about comedy. Do you not want to examine it, examine your process? No,
2: I, I, I don't feel uh, superstitious about it like that. It, but it is just genuinely mysterious. I mean, where where a you know where a funny idea is going to come from, I I don't know. It, might, it, it just it just sort of happens. It doesn't happen. Uh, it, it it didn't happen unsought. You you sort of have to go looking for it. And you know, Dave and I haven't had a sketch show since uh, 2010, so we don't really think in those in those mm. sort of rhythms anymore. But But while the show was going, uh, (coughs) outside of the deliberate pub sessions, sometimes you know an idea would come more often than they do than they do now because I'm not uh, that part of my subconscious isn't hasn't got its ears open Mm. for that kind of joke. Um, It's at the moment I'm writing my first novel. Mm. I'm I'm trying to hear other things, um, uh, but it's a different a different kind of process. It is, it, it, it's difficult to give a satisfactory answer because it is a mysterious thing to me.
1: Yes. Um, writing your first novel, there is a facility in, in this book in terms of structure, you know, you do some sort of quite audacious things in terms of jumping back and forth and always keep the audience with you. So technically, will the novel be do a bit of that? Will there be a bit of jumping
2: around? The novel or? will do a, a bit of that, yeah. Uh, although, well, it's doing that at the moment, uh, but I'm only 15,000 words in to the first draft. Uh, oh no. But it's a, um, it's a grief-stricken, time-travelling rom-com um, <laughs> uh, called Come Again. <laughs> um, and I, and it's a, I've, I've got a, a, a female protagonist uh, female uh, main character because I like life to be difficult <laughs> um, and uh, there was a thing on Twitter about um, uh, how men write women uh, and uh, there are a lot of things to avoid
1: does she uh, not know how beautiful she
2: is no I'm not I haven't done any of that and I and I was really I was reading it shitting myself thinking <laughs> I'm, I bet I've done I bet I've done everything on this list and I had not um, I don't describe her breasts in page one uh, there is There are no, We we will never know what her breasts are like. I don't. <laughs> I don't do up. her breasts. The uh, time so
1: travelling is interesting. Is that Doctor Who? I mean, that that was obviously a very formative influence. Yeah, period. I love Doctor
2: Who. Um, yeah, it's partly that, and it's partly a way of. It's uh, in a way, it's it's continuing a preoccupation with grieving and mm. with. Uh, so she, I don't want to, I'd love to tell you the premise, like and it's not that I think We won't tell anyone. It's not that I think, because writers don't steal from each other, but, mm. but you never know who else is in the room. Uh, uh, I'm so far away from publication that I can't, mm. I can't have someone writing something on a blog and then suing me later. Um, but anyway, um, But anyway, it's, it's the, the reason for the time travel, it'll all become clear next summer when when it's published. Mm. <laughs>
1: When you were writing this book, in terms of precedence, was there much around? You know, I was thinking, I love these kind of books. And as a woman, it seems like I have so many to choose from. You know, there's Caitlin Moran or Lena Dunham or Gloria Steinem, you know, and and if you're a man, you get maybe Rudyard Kipling's If, (laughs) or, you know, Star Wars, perhaps, you mentioned. But were, were there books you were thinking of?
2: Other memoirs, yeah. Uh, no, the, I mean, I I haven't read that many. Uh, the the sort of big shiny flawed studio showbiz ones, the the, the proper sort of how I became so marvelous uh, <laughs> books. I haven't really, I haven't really bothered with those. I mean, I loved uh, uh, Clive James's uh, mm-hmm. memoirs, of course. Who doesn't? Uh, and uh, and um, there's a wonderful. Uh, David Niven, uh, one called The Moons a Balloon," uh, which is clearly the best title ever. And Rupert Everett, uh, this is very Luxist of me, because I didn't think Rupert Everett would be a very good writer, because he's too good looking. he's
1: so handsome. He's too <laughs>
2: handsome to write. And it turns out he's a wonderful writer. And it's, uh, his memoirs are terrific. Um, but, 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 yeah, apart from, apart from Clive James, uh, n- those books aren't a sort of big deal for me. But mm. I, love, I love his stuff. He has a much more formal style than me, mm. and I'm I'm sort of somewhere in between him and Catelyn Moran. Catelyn's is just <laughs> wah, bah, bah, <laughs> um, and I'm sort of hovering somewhere in the middle.
1: But again, that joyfulness is so important. I think you know when when Catelyn's sort of screaming, "Feminism needs big undies. We've got to go. You you go with her. You know, you go yeah, with that." Yeah,
2: absolutely. No, I loved. I read her book, and it was great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're telling your own story, but you're always relating it to a broader context, and that is very deftly done you know, in, in your book, and it's one of the real enjoyments of it. And you do talk about, I think there's only one part where you sort of directly address Trump and Brexit, and you talk about you know, the, the, the cracks in the wall of mutual suspicion that make possible a politics of civility that the algorithms and self-policing identity groups of Facebook and Twitter hastily tried to paste over. That's hopeful, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, w- I wanted it to be a, 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 an optimistic book, really. Mm. Um, but, you know, I was writing most of that first draft in, in 2016 when uh, just everybody I'd ever admired on TV apparently uh, died, you know, I mean, and, it's, and it's kind of, you know, I mentioned, i had already mentioned Victoria Wood and George Michael and Carrie Fisher uh, and Prince. And, uh, and then they all die in, you know, during the same year, and I, in, a, in a very, this will sound callous, but in a sort of one-track mind author's way, I was kind of sitting there going, I, you know what, I think my book is quite sad enough, and now it's getting sadder by the week. Could everyone please stop dying? Because, um, and, and then there's a story about Carrie Fisher, because yeah. I, I met her. Uh, And in fact I had dinner with her uh, and got lost in the middle of London with her and uh, and I'd written that part And she died at the end of that year and I but I left it in there and I I even sort of risked You know drawing back the curtain to see the mad the mad old man with the buttons um, uh, You know just talking to the reader and saying look I'll be honest with you I wrote this in 2016 when she was still alive and I didn't I wasn't really looking for a sad bit at this part of the book but I'm gonna leave it here because it's, you know, it deserves its own innocence. Uh, and also it's, you know, it's, it's partly about <coughs> uh, how good men are supposed to be at directions. <laughs> uh, something, something else I can't do.
1: The exception that proves the rule, but it's a magical, it's sad, but it's also magical. And, and you know, part of the, the magic is you dancing with Princess Leia because the sort of ghost of Luke Skywalker does come in and out of of the book and Darth Vader. Yes. Course.
2: No, I mean, it's, it's, it's not going to impress people who've always loathed Star Wars. Uh, but it's not uh, for you. But, it, okay. but, yeah, no, I do, I do use, uh, that does crop up every now and again, the sort of, uh, the me and dad being uh, in, my, in my head uh, at the time, I was Luke uh, and he was Darth, uh, <laughs> and, then it, and then it sort of turned out that maybe I had Darth-like qualities myself. Uh, but anyway, it all, I, I, I managed to make it all work in a way that doesn't sound, it isn't as incredibly banal and stupid as it sounds no. at the moment.
1: And that's all we have time for.
2: And on yeah. that slightly <laughs> pompous note.
1: No. <laughs> you speak truth.
2: Thank you.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.